So we have an emotionally charged chapter here in Genesis chapter 25. A lot, a lot happens, as you just heard. Uh, one generation is going to uh, end the death of Abraham. And then we read about the rising of a, a new generation through the birth of uh, Jacob and Esau. So the family is going to go through some dramatic changes here. So we've got these three sections where we're going to read about Abraham's death and then the birth of Esau and Jacob to Isaac and Rebekah. And then this uh, interaction between Esau and Jacob that is uh, indicative of what we're going to see uh, from these from these two men in verses and chapters to come. So uh, a lot of motion here to think about if you've lost people that you've loved who were uh, close to you. Uh, maybe your parents, as Isaac is going to have to bury his dad here, um, as well as if you've had children or people who are close to you have had children. It's another high emotion event. It's all going to happen here at once. Uh, I lost my dad 10 years ago, the same year that I lost my dad. My son Peyton was born about six or seven months later after my dad died, my son was born. And it it all hit in this year, so it was it was the worst year and the best year, uh, but a lot of emotion, and that's a lot of what we're going to be reading here. Some of you will identify with it, and as if there wasn't enough uh, emotion here, uh, we're going to go to the, the New Testament commentary on Jacob and Esau, which we find in Romans chapter 9, which is a very uh, con- uh, controversial, unfortunately, controversial chapter in our Bible, but also commonly misunderstood. And probably uh, no chapter has had more abuse done to it than Gen- uh, Romans chapter 9. So we're just going to go for all of that today. Uh, we should pray before we get started because it would be rough if we don't. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your grace that has brought us here today. And if we are not mindful of how gracious you've already been just in the first few hours of our day, uh, make us mindful now. Yeah. You have blessed us. There's not a person in here who hasn't been blessed uh, to a great degree, by you personally today. Um, Give us hearts of thankfulness and hearts of gratitude. And now we sit, Father, on the the verge of hearing uh, your word preached, myself included. God, we come to your word now and we hear um, what you have, have put together as revelation from you to us. And it's your word that you use to change us. It's your word that you use to challenge us, to encourage us, to, to give us understanding uh, of who we are, who we are in you. Um, and for those who don't know you and those who don't love you, um, they get to hear of what could be today. So I pray that we would, we would all this morning hear of what is or what could be in Christ. Relationship with God the Father Creator in and through Christ. May us who are believers hear what it is and be reminded of what it is. And for those who do not yet know you, God, I pray that they would hear so clearly what it could be in such a way that it would move them to turn to you and to run to you and to embrace you and your word. So equip us and help us by your spirit. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 25, let's go. We'll go one verse at a time. Verses 1 through 4 to start with. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. 
Sheborim, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So here we go, right? Going to say all of these names with total confidence in my pronunciation. But between you and me, I have absolutely zero idea how to pronounce these. But neither do you, so it doesn't really matter. Verse 3. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanak, Abida and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. A lot of ground is going to be covered in verses 1 through 18. This is going to be the end of Abraham's life. Just these 18 verses are going to cover the last 35 years of his life, though. So a lot is going to be packed in here. Verse 1, it looks like Abraham marries again. However, it is likely that Keturah was actually not another wife that he took after the death of his wife, Sarah. She was most likely a concubine. In fact, First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32 names Keturah as a concubine. In that case, she would have been like uh, Hagar, another one of Abraham's concubines, but she would still be very uh, different from Sarah, okay, his princess, his wife. She was unique. Now, these relationships that a man would have with concubines, they were formal relationships. They were formal relationships, but they did not have the same obligations that marriage had. They did not have the same commitment that marriage had. Uh, and they certainly did not have the same benefits that, that marriage had. But most likely, that's who she is. I think he had one wife, and then he had a couple concubines, and he ends up having uh, more children, more children with her. So he waited all of his life, right, to have uh, one son, and then the ball starts rolling downhill, if you will. Then he has six more children, six more children with Keturah. So that's eight total children, one with Hagar, uh, one with Sarah, and then we six, the six we read about here that he had with Keturah. And verse 5 and 6 is Abraham's last will and testament. Okay, what's going to happen with his estate? Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So there's a good principle here. This isn't what many of us have pictured or in movies or experienced. It's not Abraham dies. Everyone sits in a room and there's a sealed envelope and it opens. And surprise, you get nothing or you get everything. This is actually Abraham taking care of uh, his affairs before he's even dead. Okay, very responsible. So he gathers together all of his sons and he, he, he takes care of his estate while he's still alive and makes sure that everybody knows um, what, they can, what they can expect. So in verse 5 and 6, that's what he's doing. He is, he is declaring his will in regards to what he wants to have happen with his estate. Now Isaac is the son of promise. Okay, so he's distinct. Isaac is the son of promise. So Abraham looks out at all his boys and says, I love all of you. Okay, I love all of you. Um, but there's something special about this boy. Now, that is not Abraham showing favoritism to his sons. We're going to see Isaac and Rebekah do that. That's not good. Abraham is not showing favoritism to his sons. He's actually responding to what God has told him. I can't imagine being in the position that uh, men like Abraham and Isaac were in, where God reveals to them the future destiny of their children, whether it's good or bad. I can't imagine the burden that that would be, knowing that you're going to have this child and they're, gonna, they're never going to walk with the Lord. Okay, Abraham, he bore that burden. 
He knew that, that Isaac was going to be the son of promise. Okay, And that means that way back in Genesis chapter 3, God came with his rescue plan, right? And he begins telling his people that um, you're, you're, you're enslaved now, you're in trouble now, you've fallen, you're in sin, we've got Satan, and you've got death, and eternal alienation from me is at your door, so I'm going to send a rescuer. Right, we know that to be Jesus Christ. I'm going to send a rescuer. and He's going to be a man. He's going to be born. He's going to be fully man and fully God. And someday he's going to come. And then throughout the Old Testament, God through his prophets is giving more and more insight into who he's going to be and when he's going to come, where he's going to show up and what he's going to do. And this is very early on when there's very little information. But what they do know is that he's going to come through this particular family line. And so when Abraham has a bunch of sons, you know, God is looking at him and saying, listen, I know you love all your boys, but one of them is is very special. okay? and one of them is loved by me in a very different way and in a unique way. And he is going to be blessed in a way that is different from how your other boys are going to be blessed. He is the son of promise. So Abraham faithfully follows God on this. okay? and he gives gifts to all of his boys. Right, he gives them some inheritance. He gives them gifts to all of his children. But then to Isaac, he gives, what does it say? All that he had. All that he had goes to Isaac. So this is, this is a principle that we see in Abraham with his boys. And it's a principle that's in God. And that is there's common blessing and there's covenant blessing. Okay, God blesses everyone. If you've been created and made by God, then you have been blessed by God. Okay, you are loved by God. God has blessed you. We, we, we came here this morning probably disregarding many blessings that we've already received today, whether you love God or not. Okay, unconditional, common blessings that he pours out on people. It's what the sun coming up in the morning is. It's what um, clean air to breathe is. It's what fresh water to drink is. It's what good food to eat is. These are all common blessings that God gives. But God also gives covenantal blessings. He gives covenant blessings. Which means that He blesses everyone to a degree. But then there are very special blessings that He pours out on His covenant people. Covenant, commitment, relationship, promises. A people that He is in community with. His family, the children of God. So Abraham does the same with his boys. He says, hey, listen, I love all of you. I'm going to give all of you gifts. I'm going to give all of you inheritance. And you, I'm going to send all of you, save Isaac. I'm going to send you east. And if you remember, that's what he did with Ishmael. When God told him, I need you to send your son Ishmael, send him east, send him away, because Isaac is the one that I'm going to work with. Okay, so, but, Isaac, but Abraham loves all of his boys. He loves all of his boys. You remember how painful it was when he sent Ishmael away? In fact, he even pleaded with God and said, God, can you... Can he be the one? This is before Isaac is born, remember? God says, listen, you're doing things your way. This is not my way. Okay? I'm going to work through this other son that I'm going to give you. Remember, Abraham says, can, can Ishmael be the one? Can you work through him? Do I have to send him away? It was painful. It was painful. But Abraham's faithful. So he obeys God. He honors God. And he's doing the same thing here. He looks at all his sons and says, I love you. Here's some gifts. Here's some inheritance. And I need to send you eastward. And then he looks to his son Isaac and he says, Isaac, everything I've got is yours. Everything I've got is yours. In other words, you're going to assume spiritual leadership in this family. Okay, you're the new patriarch. Okay, you're going to take over when I die. Covenant blessing for Isaac. Verse 7 and 8. A summary of the end of his life. 
These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. One hundred and seventy five years. Long time. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. So he lived 175 years and then he was gathered to his people. This is what you want the condition of your life to be at the end. You want this to be said about you. This is the, this is the right way to end your life. This is a good way to end his life. He's not full of regret. Abraham, what does it say? He breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. What does that, what does that mean? This does not mean that he was gathered to all of his physical ancestors from, from Ur, from Haran, where he had come from, like his father who had died before him. Okay? It does not mean that when he dies, he's going to be gathered to his physical lineage. What this means is that he's going to be gathered to his people, which are the people of God. Those who are faithful. Right? This is what you can expect as a Christian when you die. To be, to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with who? Present with the Lord. And who else is going to be present with the Lord when you see him? Those who are faithful. His children. His people. So when Abraham was gathered to his people after his death, it means that he's, he's gathered to men like Noah. That's his people. Right? His church family. Those who love the Lord. He's gathered to Noah and the likes of Abel and Enoch. It provokes a bunch of questions for us. Like, when you die, who will you be gathered to? Who are you going to be gathered to? Whether you love God or not, you're, gonna, you're going to see people on the other side of this life. And you're going to spend eternity with those people. You're going to be gathered to a people. Who will those people be? Who will those people be? It also, when we come across death in the Bible, it makes us reminded of our mortality. Abraham had things together. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to be buried? Is your life in order? Are your affairs in order? Is your legacy set? Are you ready for that day to come the way Abraham was? Or maybe put yourself in Isaac's position. Are you ready to bury your father? Are you ready to bury your mother? Is there words that still need to be said? Are there actions that need to be taken? Are there steps that need to be taken? What would be your condition if you left this place and you got news that your mother or your father was dead? Would you be filled with regret? What would you be filled with? Are you ready to bury those who you are close to? Are you ready to bury those those people who are members of your immediate family? Are you ready to do that? The question is with a clear conscience. Verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, we're going to have a reunion here. Isaac and Ishmael have not been together for a long time, but they reunite over the grave of their father. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. 
So Isaac, here we read, is buried next to... Who's he buried next to? He's buried next to his princess. Sarah means princess. We read before, he, he went to a lot of work, paid a lot of money for this tomb, for this cave that was in a really nice cave and a really nice field. And he wanted his wife to be, to be buried there. And then he's going to be buried there as well. And then we're going to see his boys are going to be buried there, there as well. They all want to be, they all want to be together. I, I used to think that this was just pointless and silly. And what's the point of that? And, and now I actually have, have thought about it the last couple of weeks. I mean, he must be buried next to Sarah. I don't know how this is going to work, but but we do know that in the end, when Jesus comes back, uh, that we're going to receive new bodies and they're going to resemble our old bodies, but they're going to be imperishable. In other words, we're going to recognize one another. And on that last day, Jesus is going to come and we're going to rise up out of the grave. Well, I might want to be buried next to my wife. Because if and when that day comes, she's the first one I want to see. She's the first one I want to see. I think that'd be great. His kids are there, so we're looking for the Myers family plot starting this week. We, we need like an acre. <laughs> the family keeps, keeps growing. So Abraham is buried next to his princess so that they can um, possibly, I don't know, so that they can, can rise together. I like that idea. And then we have the reunion, though, of two brothers who do not get along. Okay? We have the reunion of two brothers who do not get along. This is two brothers who still do not get along. Isaac is going to become the father of the Jewish people. Ishmael is going to become the father of the Arab nations. The Jewish people and the Arab people, you know this, are still not getting along today. It is a family feud that began with a man impregnating a woman who is not his wife. And it's still going on today. And at this time, Isaac and Ishmael, they do not get along. You remember... The last time we saw them together, Isaac was about three years old. Ishmael was 17 years old. Okay, Sarah was throwing a party for her son because she had weaned him. He had made it a few years. He had passed the common um, rate, of, uh, the age of, of mortality. So it looked like he was going to survive. God was going to bless him. So typically in that culture, they throw a huge party, invite everybody. And mom catches Ishmael, the 17-year-old, beaten up on the three-year-old. So Mama Bear Sarah gets in between. She goes and has a conversation with her husband and says, you need to do something about this. God says, you need to listen to your wife. I know you love both your boys, but my plan is with this boy. Don't worry. I love this boy too. I'm going to bless this boy, but you need to send him away. It's going to be trouble. And he does this really painful thing when he sends away his concubine Hagar, the maidservant, and his son Ishmael. They haven't seen each other since. And they will be in division for the rest of their lives. In fact, when we read in just a few more verses, Ishmael is going to die and Isaac does not go to his funeral. And that's a statement. That's a statement. There is not going to be any reconciliation. Sibling rivalry is a big deal in the book of Genesis. It started with Cain and it's sad, but it's all over. It started with Cain and Abel. Uh, we see it here with Isaac and Ishmael. And we're going to get introduced to it as well with Jacob and Esau today. And Isaac and Ishmael are never going to work things out. It's going to be a family feud that is going to go on for the rest of their lives. And I think a good thing for us to be reminded of is that some of you need to hear this. Some of you have, you have family feuds that are never going to resolve. You have, you have issues with family members 
and they're not going to resolve. And there's going to come a point where some of you will need to say, I'm done. And you're going to need to move on. It means you're going to hope for reconciliation. It means you're going to pray for reconciliation. But you're going to stop bending over backwards in an effort to reconcile with people when everything says there is not going to be reconciliation in this lifetime. I mean, as believers, we're called to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. Okay, so you do what you can do. You say what you can say. You exhaust some resources, right? And we're to have a disposition towards everyone that says, hey, listen, if you come and seek my forgiveness and if you repent, I will forgive you. And it is unchristian for you to say that you love Jesus, but to, to harbor bitterness and resentment against people. So that's not what we're talking about by moving on. There are people that you're not reconciled with right now. There's people who have sinned grievously against you and they are not interested in reconciliation and they're not asking your forgiveness. And you cannot have a restored relationship until they ask you to forgive them. You can't. Not until they express sorrow for what they've done and an interest in being reconciled to you. There is nothing you can do. And what I've seen people do is make a particular relationship an idol. And it becomes your mission to have reconciliation with this individual. And there may come a time where you need to say, you know what? It is what it is. And you need to move on. You need to be careful that your life doesn't become so consumed with this unreconciled relationship that you neglect your reconciled relationships. And love and care for the people who love and care for you and you're in committed relationship with. And sometimes we just need to let go of these things. There are people in my life today that I know God could come and He could work a miracle. I know that. I might pray for that. I might hope for that. But I'm not expecting reconciliation with them. We've gone our separate ways like Isaac and Ishmael. We've gone our separate ways. And listen, some of them are Christians. I have relationships or non-relationships like this with Christians. And it's come to a point where it's, see you in heaven. We're not going to work this out here. You've sinned against me. You've sinned against my family. It's not hunky-dory. It's not okay. This isn't cool. If you seek forgiveness and repent and turn to the Lord and, and turn back to me, my arms are open. Of course, forgive you 70 times 7. But until that happens, we're going our separate ways. And it doesn't look like anything is going to change there. Now, that is, I'll admit, that's going to be a very awkward moment in heaven. I don't know how that's going to work out. But it's going to be awkward. And I've literally told people, I will see you in heaven. That's much better than the alternative. <laughs> it's not so bad, right? See you in heaven. Verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. 
whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the son of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. And so here you're going to see 12 Arab nations that come from Ishmael. Here's something really interesting. If you look back at uh, chapter 17, verse 20. God promises, you remember Abraham is struggling with the thought of sending his son away. And so God says, listen, I, I love Ishmael too, and I'm going to bless him. He's not, my, he's not my chosen one. Okay, it doesn't mean he's saved. It doesn't mean he's elected. It doesn't mean that I'm going to give him covenantal grace. But I love him, and I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to make him into a great nation. You know what's fascinating about that is that, first of all, God makes promises to non-believers, That's a gracious God. He doesn't just bless non-believers. There are times in Scripture where God makes promises to people who hate Him. Ishmael hates God. Ishmael is godless. He does not honor the Lord. He is not interested in the things of the Lord. And God makes promises to him. And then what do we read in these next few verses? God fulfills His promise that He made to bless Ishmael. So these are the names. Neboth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Adbeel, and Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Mesa, Hadad, Tema, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of blessing. 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Different people, isn't it? It's a different people. That's a somber verse. He was gathered to those who did not love the Lord. Did not serve God. They settled from Avila to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled... Over against all his kinsmen. Right? So there will be division and fighting for the rest of Isaac and Ishmael's life. Not only the rest of their lives, but it is still going on today. The sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael are still at war with one another. Okay, we come to the next section. Verses 19 through 28. Now the new generation. Okay, so Isaac is now the head of the family. Isaac is the patriarch, and now the new generation is going to come up. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. There's a lot packed in a few verses there. Here Isaac is. He's head of the family. And Rebekah, she shares something in common with her mother-in-law, Sarah, that went before her, doesn't she? She's barren. She wants a child. Her and Isaac want a child. They can't have a child. She's not getting pregnant. It's this issue that's still a big issue today. An issue in your Bible, we see God's people struggle with infertility. Children are reward from the Lord. We want children. We love children. We can't have children. It's extremely painful. We have people in our church going through this right now. Struggling with this right now. How do we handle this? 
we've got a great example here. We've got a great example how Isaac handles it. What does he do? He prays for her. He doesn't say he just prays for his son. He doesn't just pray. He's praying for his wife. It's a special way that he's praying, isn't it? Lord, I want a baby. Oh, she really wants a baby. Lord, will you answer this prayer for her? Will you give her a child? What does God do? Isaac listens. God hears. God answers Isaac's prayer. She gets pregnant. When people are struggling with with infertility, when people want and desire good things and are ready for good things, and God's hand, for whatever reason, says no or not yet, God's people should pray. God's people should pray. They should cling to God. should go to God. should trust God. There's many ways that matters can be taken into our own hands these days. We should trust the Lord and pray to the Lord and ask Him to make His will very clear. Well, this is how He chooses to do it in this case. Now, one thing, skip down to the last sentence of verse 26. The last sentence of 26. We get Isaac's age when his wife gives birth. How old is he when she gives birth? He's 60 years old. How old was he when he and Rebecca started trying to have a baby? He was 40 years old. How long does Isaac pray? 20 years. 20 years. Years. That's faithfulness. 20 years he's praying. And he does not go and get himself a Hagar. That's how Abraham handled this, right? Oh, you're late, God. (laughs) You're late. You said you were going to do this. This is how we work with God, right? You said you were going to do this. You promised you were going to do this. So I assume you mean in the next five minutes. It doesn't happen. It's been days. It's been weeks. God, I don't understand what you're doing. I've been praying about this for hours. When are you going to show up? Years. 20 years he's faithful to pray. 20 years God just gives him patience to wait on the Lord. Another thing that you can notice is one of the things that's happening during these 20 years while Isaac is praying that his wife would have a child, is that his unbelieving, God-hating brother is popping out kids left and right. Baby, 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 baby. Oh, that's great. That's nice, yeah. Great. Oh, she's pregnant again. What is that, 10? Wow. 12. He wrestles with what we read David wrestling with, what I'm sure you've wrestled with, and it's got... I love you. I'm a believer. I'm in Christ. I want something good. Why aren't you giving it to me? And then we got this guy, right? This guy. That doesn't love you. Doesn't give a rip about you. Doesn't go to church. Doesn't sing praise songs. Doesn't pray. Doesn't read his Bible. Doesn't give a rip about you, God. And he's got everything that I want. You know people like that. And they have everything that if you had a list of what you wanted, they've got it and they don't love God. And you were like, what's up, God? What is the problem here? Is this not, I do this and you compensate me? (laughs) And it's not, right? And God teaches us this. But 
But how much more painful would that make this for Isaac and his bride? Hey, Veritas is not a is not a painless place to be if you struggle with infertility. I mean, every couple of weeks it seems like, right? Someone's pregnant. Someone's having a baby. And we have people here who I know who when they hear that news, they rejoice and they're happy and they're totally sad. They're totally sad. Because they want to have that blessing. What do we do? We pray. We pray. All kinds of things we could pray for, right? Patience, peace, children. But we pray. And Isaac's our example there. Verse 22. So God's going to answer her prayer. The children. Plural. So not only does she uh, conceive and she's pregnant. Not one. Two. Two. Two kids. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. The children, verse 22, struggled together within her. This is... So this is not like cute kicking. Or you know what you know at that oh. Right? You just you see a mom do that and you know what she's talking about. Oh. And he starts calling people like, what is she doing? Well, she feels like a little a cute little kick, right? And then everybody comes and puts their hands and oh, I felt it. <laughs> this is not cute. Hey, this is li- this is this is MMA. In a womb is what's happening between Jacob and Esau. It is common for brothers to fight, but this is an early start. They're fighting in the womb. This is like Esau has got Jacob in a Nelson in his mom's belly. Ground and pound, arm bar, and it's ridiculous. And she knows it. She's like, this is not normal. I've felt other moms. I've seen other moms. I've seen the cute little foot. Like that was a head with an arm around it and it's protruding and I'm freaking out. And so what does she say? Why is this happening to me? And every pregnant woman says that at least once during their pregnancy. (laughs) This is what she does. She cries out to the Lord. This is what is happening in my body. And women, they get mad at their husbands brief right like what what did you do what did you do to me cursed are you for what you have done to me you wicked wicked man and they cry out to the lord at some point and say what is happening to me why is this happening to me? i'm going crazy i'm going crazy i feel crazy i look crazy i'm thinking crazy what is why is this happening to me see it's biblical it's biblical Okay, Rebecca went through the same thing. She knows this isn't good. She knows this isn't normal. And so she cries out to God. She literally goes and inquires. It's like an official thing. She goes to church, gets down on her knees and says, what is going on? This is not normal. And God's answer is not all that reassuring. It's It's not all that encouraging. He basically says that this is a preview of coming attractions. These boys are, it's not going to go well between these boys. 
What did he say? Two nations are in your womb. That That's kind of freaky. <laughs> two na- I, mean, I thought it was two kids. Two nations are in... Jesus Christ is going to have a litter now. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. We glaze over this. Can you imagine knowing this about your kids? Can you imagine the kind of faith and, and love for the Lord that it's going to take from parents like Isaac and Rebecca to know from birth that this child that they love and care for is never going to love the Lord? I can't imagine what that would be like. She's going to have to wear that burden, as is her husband. God says, this is, this is indicative of what the rest of their life is going to look like. Okay, it's not going to go well between these boys. You've got two peoples. You've got two nations. This is like Isaac and Ishmael again. You've got two boys, and from them are going to come two different people groups. And he says, the older will serve the younger, which would not be traditional or typical. Typically, the younger would serve the older. The older would rule over the younger. But God says it's going to go different with these boys. Now, verse 24. And I, I think there's some funny things we read here. Well, it's, okay to, it's, not, um, it's okay to laugh a bit. Uh, we're going to get introduced to Esau and, uh, and Jacob. And they're, they're, they're coming forth here. It's, it's kind of a funny story. First, we've got Esau, verse 24 and 25. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And this baby is red. This is the only description of him. He's red and hairy. Elmo. <laughs> right? Rebecca has Elmo. <laughs> That's what I picture in my mind. I mean, the size is right. Everything. Just a little, little just picture a little Elmo doll. That freak, this is not, this isn't cool. And so what do they do? So they name him Esau, which sounds like the Hebrew word for hairy, which is really messed up. <laughs> this is why we do not name our children before we see them. Or some of your kids would be named things like unibrow, or Sasquatch, or conehead, or smush, or sideburns, or mudflap, or carpet neck, or ew. They'd have all different kinds of Names, because contrary to common belief, and this is biblical proof of it, all babies are not cute. <laughs> Some of you don't want to smile, but you know the, the truth of that. All mine were cute. <laughs> this is how it works, right? The Lord blinds you so that your child doesn't matter. It could be the craziest looking thing to ever come out of a womb, and it will be beautiful and glorious and cute and precious to you. Everyone else sees him and it runs, but you're like, what's the problem here? This is a beautiful, a beautiful child. All babies are, are not necessarily attractive. <laughs> so this, that, was, that was Esau. You, he gave you nightmares. Okay, that's Esau. Verse 26, Jacob. The story gets weirder. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Now, I've seen a few births, and I can't even imagine how this goes, but Esau is born, and then as they're pulling his last leg out, there's a grip. 
that his little brother has, and that's like how he, that's like, you're my ticket out of here. He grabs onto his heel, and then they name him Heel Grabber. <laughs> it's just crazy. They name him Heel Grabber. We've got Harry and Heel Grabber. <laughs> my goodness. Uh, or Deceiver. You grabs the heel. It can also mean deceiver. This is what they name Jacob. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, we learn a little bit more about these boys. Uh, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Okay, so there's a big, a big difference between Esau and uh, Jacob. Okay, they're going to be two very, very different boys. Uh, one is going to uh, be like the macho, okay, the, the man's man. Um, there's just no doubt, right? And that's going to be uh, Esau. And then the other one, you're just you're not sure what's going on. Esau, it tells us he's, he's a skillful hunter, okay? So put this all together. He's, he's red, he's hairy, He's a, a, a hunter. This is Duck Dynasty. Picture Duck Dynasty. This is Esau. Um, he drives a, drives a truck. He hunts. He shoots things. When he wants food, he goes out and, and kills it. And that's what he does. So he is the picture of uh, the, the stereotype of masculinity. Now, we're going to see that actually Esau is not a portrait of biblical manhood. Actually, Jacob is the portrait of biblical manhood. But on the outside... On the outside, Esau is the man's man, and Jacob is, it says, is a quiet boy who prefers the indoors. So you're worried about this kid, right? Doesn't want to go outside. It's just so dirty out there, and I just don't know what's going to happen. And uh, you know, I'd rather I'd rather stay by mom. I'd rather stay by mom, and he's got the easy bake oven and. <laughs> You know, he's cooking with mom. You're like, that's cool to a point, but this is getting, this is getting a little worrisome. And so this is, uh, this is these two boys. And then verse 28, a sad verse. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So this is also messed up. This is favoritism, which is not good, is not okay. Some of you, I'm sure, experience this in your families. And so you know the effects of this. And you know how wrong it is and how wicked it is. You grew up and it was just clear that, that mom or dad loved your brother or your sister more than they loved you. Because they showed so much favoritism to them. You have complexes because of this. You have anxieties because of this. You have worries because of this. Am I going to be discarded? Am I not going to be loved as much? Am I second rate? Is there something wrong with me? And of course, all of that is untrue. It's the sin of your parents. It's the sin of your parents. This is not good, what Isaac and Rebecca did. It was not good. We've got this book that we love to read to our boys. We don't read it as much anymore. They're getting a little big for it, but maybe we'll read it again soon. And uh, the book is called You're All My Favorites. Okay, it's a mama bear and a dad bear, and they've got three baby bears, and each of the baby bears is, comes to mom and dad bear at a different time and says, hey, who's your favorite? Right, kids do this. They ask this question. Not when anybody else is around. But they ask it because it's all right. It's just the two of us. Okay, I know. I see how you treat me. And I know me. And I'm sure that we're, uh, you know, 
So who's your who's your favorite? And, and the answer that Mama Bear and Dad Bear keep giving is, well, you're all my favorites. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. It means that God gives me. Uh, now I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna treat you in different ways, and I'm gonna say different words to you. I'm not gonna treat you like a bunch of robots. I'm gonna always do what's best for you. But my my feeling toward you. My emotion toward you is the highest degree that God gives me to love. You've got that. You've got that. Because you know, the firstborn is born and he thinks, well, you love me. And now, and now the second one and our family, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one. And so the idea is you've got this capacity to love, right? And now it's got to get divided, divided by five. But that's, that's not the case. Okay, full love, full on each child. No favoritism. It becomes crucial when your kids misbehave. Because you're going to have seasons where, where, where one of your children may misbehave more than your other children. And he's already going to start to think, as a human being, he's going to start to think that you probably love him less. Because he's, he's harder. He's more difficult. He's more, more annoying. He takes a lot more work. As a human being, he's already going to start to draw some conclusions. And you don't want those conclusions to be true. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't. I'll, I'll, I'll say sometimes to my boys, if there's been something really bad that's happened, and we're good and we're reconciled, I'll, I'll say to them even now. Listen, you know, right? You know that you could do anything. You could do anything. You could do something much worse than you did today, and I'm not going to love you any less. I'll always love you the same as I love you right now, and I can't love you any more than I love you right now. That's how it should be. Isaac and Rebecca, there's favoritism. And it doesn't surprise us who buddies up with who. Right? Isaac uh, buddies up with Esau because Isaac's a man and Esau's like a man and, and Rebecca buddies up with Jacob because Jacob kind of acts like a girl. Okay, he's not. We're going to see this. He's a crafty little guy. But he, he kind of acts like a girl. And it, it's, it's real shallow. You see, why does Isaac... Isaac loves Esau and buddies up with Esau because he kills animals and grills it and brings it to him he's like you're my favorite you are i connect with you and jacob comes in like i made you a quiche daddy it just doesn't do it for him but it's from scratch you know this conversation's over (laughs) you killed that quiche embarrassing me this is what's going on so just now they start gravitating right they start gravitating rebecca's like oh he's so sweet he's so sweet jacob i love you he's gonna keep going i love you just let's go bake something let's cook something let's watch martha let's let's go for a walk you know and it's not going it's not going well for poor poor little jacob so there's there's favoritism now in the home not a not a good thing verse 29 now, okay? Okay, so you see, you're gonna, we're going to find out what these men are made of. So despite appearances, okay, Jacob, you're going to see Jacob's, Jacob's a solid guy. We're going to see that in, chap- in, in verses to come. Jacob is going to be with us for almost the rest of the, the, the sermon series through Genesis. He hangs on to almost the very end of this book. Okay, there's more about him than anyone else. So there's, there's a lot to do with Jacob. Verse 29. Once... This story is, this is ridiculous. Listen to this story. 
Uh, once when Jacob was cooking stew, right? no surprise there, Esau came in from the field, no surprise there, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Guess what Edom means? Red. So now he's got a nickname. And when you actually read the Hebrew, here's what's going on. Uh, Esau is an emotional guy. Okay, Esau is an emotional guy. He is prone to uh, fits. Okay, he has outbursts. And that's what we read about in verse 29 and 30. His emotions get the best of him. So he's already red. Elmo, remember? When he was born, he was red. And now he comes in and he asks for this red stew. And if you look at the Hebrew, he actually says it twice. He says, give me that red stew, that red stew. I'm exhausted, which, which really means like today would be, I am starving to death. I've been out hunting. I haven't caught anything. I'm hungry. You've got to give me food. It's just dramatic. This is what he's doing. You've got to give me food in five minutes. I'm going to perish right here on the kitchen floor. Give me that red stew. Red stew. And his face is getting what? Redder. And so they're all like, huh, red. And it, it actually follows him. His people end up being called red. Oh, yeah, you're the guy who whined, cried, threw a fit over a bowl of stew. And Jacob's quiet. Right? He's self-controlled. He's disciplined. He's shrewd. He's always planning. He's thoughtful. He has enormous self-control. That's Jacob. So Esau has just fallen into a snare. So he comes in. He's having this, this, this outburst. Right? And, if you, and if you've ever had boys or been around little boys, you know that th- this is boys. boys are, my boys are always hungry. They're always hungry. We're convinced there, there, there are two states that they're in. Starving or asleep. <laughs> and that's it. If they're awake, they're, st- they're never just hungry. Not just, uh, I'd like a bite to eat. No, it's always like, I am starving. Starving to death. Son, we're five, we're five minutes from home. We're five minutes. I need food right now. You don't understand. Five minutes, I'm going to be dead in, on the car seat. You need to give me food right now. Pull over. I'll, I'll eat grass. But you need to give me food. I need sustenance. Or I'm going to perish right in front of your eyes. You want that? You want that in your lap, Dad? Give me food. I'm st- this is kids, right? They want, like, a- they want breakfast appetizers. Right? I need a bar. I need to get up. And I just need, they're not even awake yet. I just need food in my mouth before breakfast is put on the table. Every night, every night, without exception, we'll have dinner. And an hour and a half later, they will say, I need food. I'm like, son, you're going to go to sleep right now. Like, I, I know you think you need food, but you, you do not need any energy, no fuel, no sustenance. You're going to sleep right now. You don't need food. I need food. <laughs> Okay, we give him food, eating in bed, just snacking away. <laughs> all right, all right, we love you. A blessing of food. Starving, right? So this is Esau. Okay, he's having an outburst. He's throwing a fit. He's losing self-control. He's angry. He's upset. He's ticked off. He didn't catch anything. So he comes in and exaggerates. He's a drama queen and says, I need food. I'm starving. Give it to me right now. And here's what Jacob said. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. 
is interesting. I know this. I mean, most of us don't know what a birthright is, but we know enough to go, that doesn't sound like a good trade. You don't go order food off a menu and it, for cost is birthright. You know, a few bucks, 10 bucks. Okay, you're really hungry. I'm going to take advantage of you. 20 bucks, birthright. That doesn't sound good. Okay? Jacob is a schemer. Okay? He's got a plan and he's working it. Here's what the, the birthright was. The, the birthright basically was the status uh, that the firstborn son would have in a family. The oldest, you'd have a certain status in the family and it had some um, physical blessing and and spiritual. Physically, it was really a small part of it. I mean, you got double the inheritance if you had the birthright. But more significant than that is is if you had the birthright, you would get sort of a prophetic blessing that the father would give you at the end of his days. That would actually be meaningful and God would use and and, and bring it to, 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 to pass. And then most significantly, if you had the birthright, it meant that that when dad died, you would assume the role of spiritual leader of the family. You would assume the role of spiritual leader of the family. And this is what Jacob wants. So you see, Jacob is actually a man. You're going to see that Esau abdicates responsibility. Why would I want responsibility? Why would I? You guys can do what you want. I'm not interested in that. And Jacob says, I want the responsibility. I want to lead the family. I want that role. I want the authority. I want to love and care for and lead and nurture this family. So he's got a scheme. Verse 32. Esau said, I am about to die. (laughs) He's not going to die. But there it is again, the drama. I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jesus (laughs) Jacob. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he's not, this isn't going to work. You just say he's going to make him swear an oath here, which was a bigger deal. Now we throw that around. Oh, I swear this meant something then. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So here and then verse 33, uh, 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and let, so he throws in some bread. I think that's funny. Well, I did get your birthright. So. <laughs> Here's some bread to go with the stew. Now we're even. He gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Does Esau complain? Does he argue? Does he try to, uh, to go back on the offer? Does he, does he recant? No, he just eats his soup, gets up and goes away. He couldn't care less about his birthright. He despised his birthright. He couldn't care less about being the spiritual leader of his family. And so he gave it up. Now, here's the thing about Jacob. Jacob is, we could argue over whether or not this was cool, what he did. But the the reality is that what he desired was a good thing. And what he wanted was a good thing. He wants to be the spiritual leader of his home. He saw it as an honor. And so he actually proves himself, and he will. He proves himself to be the real man here who is ready and willing and eager to take responsibility. Hebrews 12, though, tells us about Esau. Uh, It encourages us in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral. Don't be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. He's an example of what not to do. God says, do not be unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, 
So later he changed his mind, the physical portion of it. He wanted the blessing. He was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it. Sought it is probably the blessing, not the repentance, though he sought it with tears. So Derek Kidner says this about Esau. Embracing the present and the tangible at any cost, going through with the choice and walking away unconcerned, incidentally far from dead, in spite of what he said in verse 32, he earned the epithet of Hebrews 12:16, a profane person. The chapter does not comment, so Jacob supplanted his brother, but so Esau despised his birthright. And Hebrews 12 shares its standpoint, presenting flippant Esau as the antithesis of the pilgrims of Hebrews chapter 11. Jacob and Esau, there they are. The last thing for us to look at briefly is Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll read a few verses from there. We've got to open that up when we talk about Jacob and Esau because you know and have heard the famous verse from Romans chapter 9 regarding Jacob and Esau where God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Which is actually a quote from the book of Malachi. Okay, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a significant thing to hear God say. So what we have here, though, is we have Jacob and Esau, right? And we're going to read more about them in weeks to come. But one of them is going to love God and one of them is not going to love God. One of them already is interested in the things of God. One of them is not interested in the things of God. One is going to continue to go the way of the Lord and the other is going to continue to go the way of man. One's going to run to God. One is going to run away from God. The question is, why are these men running in two different directions? One reason is that, well, one just loves God and the other hates God. So one wants to please God and the other doesn't care about pleasing God. But is there another answer behind that answer as to why these two twins who grow up in the same home go in dramatically different directions? And this is why Paul writes Romans chapter 9. This is why he writes Romans chapter 9. Let's read a few of these verses, beginning in verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We've heard this if you've been studying Genesis with us. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, we just read it, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now God loved Esau too. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But God loves Jacob in a very distinct way. In a way he does not love Esau. And God has chosen to love Jacob in a way where God says, I'm going to set my affection on you, Jacob, 
and work with you, Jacob, and work for you, Jacob, in a way that I'm not going to set my affection on Esau. I'm going to be for you, Jacob, quoting Malachi, and I'm going to be against Esau. And the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9 answers the question of why. Why? These kids couldn't be more closely connected. I mean, they're twins born virtually at the same time, same family, same mom and dad, heard the same words of God. One's going to turn to God, one's not. What's going on here? And it's clear that God chooses Jacob and God works with Jacob and Jesus will one day come in the line of Jacob and he will not come in the line of Esau. So the question that that brings up that Paul addresses is why? Why does God choose Jacob and why does God not choose Esau? And what, what is the point that Paul labors to make? It has nothing to do with these men. Not by works. The decision was made before they were even born. They were, if you will, predestined, is the point Paul makes. It's not like God waited to see how Jacob was going to turn out and how Esau was going to turn out, and Jacob turned out lousy, or or Jacob turned out well and Esau turned out lousy, and so God said, Okay, you're my child. It's not like God waited for uh, Jacob to place his faith in God. And then God said, okay, you're one of my people. No, the decision was clearly made in God's mind from before the point that Jacob and Esau were even born. Before neither of them did anything, they were chosen by God. Which brings up questions that Paul anticipates and answers. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the question I asked when I first read this. This is sounding unfair, sounding unjust. Sounds like they don't have an equal shot. Jacob's got a shot. Esau doesn't have a shot. You chose Jacob. You didn't choose Esau. What's he supposed to do? So we asked the question, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, by no means. Listen to his answer. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says uh, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That is that is tough truth. That is tough scripture. It's very tempting to try to make this say something that it does not. You'll never hear me say that truths like we find in Romans chapter 9 are, are, are not difficult. But they could not be more clear. Amen. They could not be more clear. And what, what is Paul saying here about God? What Paul is saying is, listen, this is why it's not unjust of God to choose some and not choose all. They all deserve death. You and I, friends, there's nothing good in us. We don't deserve God. We're born rebelling against God. We're born not running to God. We're born running away from God. We're not naturally wanting to please God. We're naturally wanting to please myself. And the Bible says this all over the place. 
Right? There is no one righteous. No, not even one. Romans chapter 3. Okay, the heart is deceitful beyond all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? We've got blind eyes, deaf ears, deluded minds. This is, we're dead in sin, not sick. We're dead in sin. We're dead to God. That's how the Bible describes our state. And then you know, you've experienced it. You know you don't naturally just love God and honor Him and please Him. We were by nature children of wrath running from God, not to Him. And so here's the point that Paul makes. God is just to not touch anyone. God is, if God is a fair God, you don't want a fair God. If God is a fair God, then God says, fine, you don't love me? You're not going to serve me? I've made it clear through my Word. I've made it through, clear through creation. Just look up. You all know there's a God who's bigger than you and better than you and rules over you. You're not going to give a rip about pleasing me. You're going to be indifferent to me. You're going to go your own way. Then fine, I will let you go your own way. That's justice. It's God's justice. Paul says it's not a question of God's justice. And here's what God comes and does. He's merciful. So friends, what is God God doing? God is is He's displaying His glory. He's displaying His character. God is a just God, but He's also a merciful God. So while God would be justified to leave us all to head straight into alienation from Him eternally, God says in his story, wait. I want to display my mercy. And so I'm going to grab some of them. If he grabs none, he's good, right, and just. If he grabs one, he's good, right, and just. And you have a God who is grabbing millions of people. Millions of people who do not love Him, who do not honor Him. He's not waiting to see some condition met in their life. He's doing this before He said, let there be light. And He's setting love and affection on them. And then at some point in time, He's intervening in their life, awakening them to His goodness and saving them. And then preparing heaven for them against the backdrop of His justice. So that you know how good He is. So that you know how merciful He is. Because this is what you're being saved from. He does not merely display His mercy and give no one justice. He does not merely display His justice and gives no one mercy. He's displaying His glory, which includes His justice and His mercy. But more objections come. And Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I've heard this argument many times. I've had this argument many times. I've asked God this many times. This was a difficult pill for me to swallow. Well, God, if it's up to you and if you've got to choose and if you've got to elect and your Holy Spirit's got to move in this person's life, and then how can you hold the guy responsible that you don't choose, that you don't elect? And so then my response to that question is to philosophize it. I can do a pretty good job of that. It can help you understand, well, God's not the author of sin and He didn't make you sinful. If He made you sinful and if He was the one who tempted you and He made you wicked and then He decides not to save you, then you could say God is unjust. But if you just are cursing God and disobeying God and loving it, He's not unjust to just let you go in the direction you want to go. 
And what's surprising that he's merciful to anyone because you're doing what you want to do, which is hating God, and you're doing it totally freely. Now, Paul does not go there. In our culture, we want to go there and make it palatable. Remember Paul's response? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? We, we can't even talk like that in this culture. I can't even hear words like that. I'm a product of my culture without being so offended. So offended. Because as a culture, we've, we've put God in the interrogation room. And when we hear you say you are God, we're going to think about this. We're going to chew on this for a while. We're going to decide whether or not we like who you are. See, we can, maybe this verse says something else. And then we put God in the dock. Rather than just God, whoever you are, whoever you are, believe it, accept it, love it. It may be tough, but I'm going to believe it, accept it, love it, because your ways are higher than my ways. You're infinite. I'm finite. And I want to know you and I want to love you. We're not humble like that. Because we're not humble like that, when we hear responses like this to Paul, it just enrages us. And then he says, well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Wow. I'm not saying these things aren't difficult, but they could not be more clear. Amen. This is God's universe. This is how God operates. Now, there are doctrines like this that, that are difficult to embrace. You accept them first, you embrace them second. That's how it worked for me. I don't like this. I don't like this, but I cannot deny it. Clearly, your word teaches this. Come and accept it. But you know what's really interesting is, is those doctrines that at first tasted so bitter to me have become the sweetest tasting doctrines. Just what we're talking about, Romans chapter 9. I didn't wrestle over a passage of Scripture anything like I wrestled over Romans chapter 9. And I fought against it and kicked against it and didn't like it. And it made me uncomfortable. Didn't like the implications tasted bitter to me and the first step was accepting it and I can honestly tell you today that there is no truth about God and his saving ways that I cherish more today than this doctrine isn't that wild I love this this has become the most precious to me God's sovereignty and my salvation It, it, it took away all my boasting I wouldn't have told you I was boasting, but I was boasting because when it came down to it, the difference between me and the other guy who's heard the same gospel message and didn't accept Jesus was that I was more open to it. I was more spiritual. I was the one pulling, willing to pull the trigger. And when I learned this, it got taken away. It made me love God more. It makes me love God more. I love God more because I, uh, I still was holding on to the assumption that God loves me because of something lovely in me. But it's unconditional, isn't it? It's unconditional. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, it doesn't mean you're the only one in this room that God loves, but He may not have revealed to everyone in this room that He loves in this way, how much He loves them yet. If you're a Christian, God's revealed this to you and He's opened your eyes to it. And what that means is that God did not set His love and affection on you when you chose Him or put your faith in Him. You didn't say, I love you, God. And He said, me too. And then the relationship started. It it actually means that before He said, let there be light, He set His affection on you. 
and he thought of you and he, you know, he dreamed you up and he decided how he was going to knit you together and what your personality was going to be and what you were going to look like physically and emotionally and mentally. And he planned out all of your days and he set his affection and love on you. And he decided the moment that he was going to open your eyes to his glory and his goodness and when the relationship was really going to get started. And he's been working now to prepare a place for you in heaven where you're going to go and be united to him in paradise and live forever in absolute joy. And he set that affection on you before you were ever even born, before he said, let there be light. And then finally, nothing gives us more confidence when we evangelize. People say, well, what's the point of evangelism? This truth totally rules out evangelism. If God's decided, then what's the point? And that totally misses the point of Scripture that God uses his means to get his people saved. And the means he uses is the sharing of the gospel. I'll just close with this picture. I've shared it before, but it's helpful, I think. When we talk about difficult doctrines like this, we talk about election, we talk about predestination that gets such a bad rap and gets very distorted and and it sounds much more ugly when it's actually wonderful, beautiful, helpful. We're all born blind. We're all born blind. We don't see ourselves for who we really are. We don't see God for who he really is. We don't see the dangers of sin for what they really are. We don't see the dangers of the world for what it really is. We don't believe in hell. We don't take spiritual things seriously. We're blinded. And the Bible tells us this and our experience proves it. We're blindfolded and we're all headed in one direction when we're born. We're not headed to the Lord. We're headed towards our enemy, Satan. Okay, towards self and my will. And against God and indifferent to God and going our own way, which God says is enmity against him. We're going in that direction. And God sends people at points in our life who share the gospel with us. And you've been on both ends of this. You've been the person that was blindfolded and the person came and said the gospel to you and told you where you were headed. And you're like, no, it's, it's, I can feel the heat. It's warm. We're going to the beach. And they're like, no, it's hell. And you need to turn around. But you're blindfolded. And so you're like, no, this is silly because, because the, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the blindfold was on and you just wanted to hear nothing of it. But then this is what happens. Okay, this is God elects and God, God goes to his elect. God goes to those whom he has chosen. At some point in their life, he sends a gospel preacher, but he doesn't just send a gospel preacher. He does something else, doesn't he? This is the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. And he comes up behind you. And he takes off the blindfold. Like, what am I doing? And it became clear, didn't it? You became born again. It became clear at a moment in your life. And you saw things for what they really were. Did you think about it at that point? I don't know. It still looks kind of good. Now you turned and you ran to the Lord and you ran to Jesus. This is what he had done. So friends, God is perfectly just and righteous to leave all the blindfolds on. And God in his great mercy is untying millions of blindfolds. Millions of blindfolds. It is all of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for time together this morning. Uh, Thank you for giving uh, my friends and brothers and sisters great patience as we had so much text to work through today. Pray that you've been glorified and honored in everything that we've done and said. I pray as we conclude our time with song, uh, with communion, that again you would be glorified, God, that you would be able to to listen to the praises of your people, to enjoy the praises of your people, that we would bring joy to your heart, God, as we exalt you and worship you the way you deserve to be exalted, the way you deserve to be worshipped. We give you all praise today and glory and honor. And we pray these things 
In the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.